This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. This is episode number 41 of the UU Perspective podcast, where you hear weekly interviews from Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists that are changing the world. Whether you're already a member or a seeker exploring the faith, there is something here for everyone. So as you sit, walk, jog, or drive, enjoy the conversations you're about to hear. So today is... December 4th, 2015. I usually don't date the podcast, but I think it's important inside of this interview as the Paris UN Climate Change Conference is going on. And I have today two guests that are actually there at this time. And when I interviewed them before this date, they let me know what their intentions were as far as what they're going to do while they're there. And whether it's attending conference workshops or attending activist events, they are just very excited that they are going to be able to participate in this. And I just want to make a note, whether there is a connection or not, but this day in history, let me say that in Ohio, that gas was $1 a gallon. Now, tell me there's no connection, but hey, whatever. Just had to put that out there and put it on the record. Just a little bit about them. Allie is a staff network coordinator for the UU Young Adults for Climate Justice, which is supported by the UU Ministry for Earth. And she is from North Texas and is part of the Horizon Church community. And Ethan, now he is very involved and is co-leader of the Religions for Peace North America Interfaith Youth Network. And he is part of the small cohort of interfaith youth sponsored by the Religions for Peace USA while he's in Paris at the COP. So here they are. Well, welcome, Allie and Ethan, and I've given everyone a little bit of information about both of you, but I'd like you to take a moment and tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your involvement in the UU community. So, Allie, would you like to go first? Sure. So, I am the network coordinator for an organization called the UU Young Adults for Climate Justice, and we are um, a program that's supported by the UU Ministry for Earth. And we have a, a whole great bunch of young adult activists who have come together in community. And my job is really to help us convene and to help support the work of us as individuals and as a collective and to bring our message to the broader faith movement. So I do that, and I also represent the Young Adults for Climate Justice on the steering committee for Commit to Respond, and that is our faith-wide initiative on climate justice. Um, so that's exciting work. And are you a lifelong UU? I started going to a UU church when I was 14, and I'm 25 now, so I'm about a half-life UU. <laughs> that's great. Half-life. <laughs> oh, perfect. And what church do you go to? Horizon UU Church in Carrollton, Texas. All right, great. Okay, and Ethan. Great, yeah. I'm uh I go to First Unitarian Universalist in Syracuse, New York, and I am a very fresh new UU. Uh I've been going to that church for about 
a year and a half and just became a member maybe about six months ago. And uh, before that, uh, I've been a Mennonite for a long time. And I was uh, drawn to the church because, one, there's not an organized Mennonite church in Syracuse, which is kind of interesting. And then, you know, for a long time, I've, I've been a universalist at heart. And so, uh, yeah, I just I checked out their blog one day and read a bunch of their sermons. And I was like, hey, this is great. And so I've, I've gone there, and I love being a part of it. Um, I was, um, they need a new chair of their social justice and outreach committee, and I, I was thinking about being on that for a while and talking to people, but I'm in the last year of my PhD, so that's that's not a, a good time <laughs> to start something like that, but uh, I look forward to doing that when I graduate this next year, so. And has, uh, for either of you, has there been someone in your UU journey that has inspired you? Well, a lot of people. <laughs> I guess there's there's been a lot of people. Um, so, let's see. I was really involved with regional youth programs um, growing up, and a lot of the advisors were a really big influence on my life, both youth advisors at my church and, and at the district level. So, that is something, and I'm still, I mean, continually inspired by people within our faith movement and also with some of the young adults who I work with, such as Jimmy Betts is someone who I just met in August at our climate justice training. And Jimmy travels with a group called Beyond Extreme Energy. And he's been carrying this um, this large mobile mural of stories of different communities impacted by fracking and taking that to different frontline struggles and just traveled the entire country, spreading inspiration through artwork. And also Tim to Christopher has started a lot of different initiatives and is a leader within the climate justice movement and spent two years in jail for disrupting a public land auction. So I'm continually inspired by Tim's willingness to to push the hard conversations and to encourage people to, to do their utmost and be as brave as possible. All right. And Ethan, anyone for you? Uh, no one in particular. I'm so I'm so new to it yet. You know, I'm I'm learning, still getting to know people at our church, and everyone's involved in really great, impressive things. So you know, at this point, you know, not a lot on that on that topic, unfortunately. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's get into the conference of the parties and tell us a little about about that, what it's about, and your travels that are going to take you to Paris. Great, yeah. So the uh, the conference on parties is uh, it's the twenty one twenty first meeting now of all the nations that have signed on to the UN framework about climate change. And so for all these years, you know, the world's been trying to, uh, like saying they're trying to <laughs> address climate change. And uh, I'm going with a group uh, of four young adults sponsored by uh, Religions for Peace. And uh, I'm sort of in this transition where I, I joined Religions for Peace representing Mennonites, and I'm kind of like a Mennonite Unitarian Universalist now. So uh, so I'm going with three other people, uh, three women, uh, a Muslim, a Zoroastrian, and uh, a Reform Jew. And so we'll be there. We'll be attending different kind of actions and programs uh, related to Religions for Peace and Interfaith advocacy on climate change 
And then uh, we'll also kind of be reporting back about all the side events and reflections we have on it while we're there. And this is a conference, you're going to be there a, a week before Ali is. And so what, uh, what are you going to be doing throughout that week? Yeah, so the, uh, like I said, there's different events going on. Uh, Religions for Peace is working with a group called Our Voices, which is an interfaith group bringing attention to climate change. And so they have some actions there delivering petitions to government officials and the head of the UN group, this uh, pilgrimage kind of event that they're having where people are sharing their stories of of journeys they're taking, you know, symbolic of the, you know, about climate change. Some people going to Paris, other people doing other things. So those short stories will be shared. And then there's just tons of, of side events going on that are open to the public where all sorts of different aspects of climate change and environmental justice and racism and everything are being discussed, all the intersections. And so we'll be going to those and uh, reporting back on them. And then, you know, the four of us that are going as a cohort, we're all connecting with our own kind of religious groups and traditions in the area and planning things like that. So there's, there's a lot going on and a lot that'll be kind of figured out on the fly, I think. Mm-hmm. And Allie, what will be your role? What are you going to be doing when you get there? Well, I went, I bought a ticket without any kind of affiliation with an organization planned. I just said, I want to be there and I'm going to be there. And my friends, I have a lot of friends from Texas going. And I joined the climate justice movement by joining the Tar Sands blockade resistance to the construction of the Keystone Pipeline in Texas and Oklahoma. And so through that experience of about a year and a half of trying to push TransCanada, trying to push their contractors, trying to push the Pipeline Hazardous Material Safety Administration, um, and trying to organize local communities in East Texas, I have, I have formed a lot of strong friendships through that. So a lot of people in Tar Sands Blockade were going, and that's really what pushed me to buy my ticket. So I'll be going with with people who don't have high hopes for the conference. And I think one of the main goals for us is to meet some of the blockaders in Germany, in France, in Europe, and in other parts of the world that are coming together, um, since there will be so many different movement leaders all coalescing in Paris. So that's my main goal, is, um, is to meet people and have some conversations about the future and what's possible. And I hope also, since I am part of Commit to Respond and, and I'm excited to be there, and since we have six people going representing the UUA, I hope to connect with them. There's three people the first week and three people the second week. And we're actually having a workshop in the official conference happening that Jan Dash and Reverend Peggy Clark will be presenting. So that's exciting. And that's happening the first week. So I won't be involved with that, but I do hope to meet up with three people the second week. And Doris Milan is one of those three people. And she actually introduced the action of immediate witness at General Assembly or did did a lot of the work. I'm sure she had partners she was working with, but she helped really bring people together to get that, get enough petition signatures to have a vote to send a delegation of observers. So that's exciting. And so my second goal would really be to help share what is happening in Paris through the blog on commit to respond.org and through Facebook and Twitter and make sure that 
you use watching back here in the in the United States or even in Canada would be able to hear words about what's happening. And then thirdly, one more thing. <laughs> uh, Surprise, the third one. <laughs> well, well, I guess two more things. There's the Lemmy Youth is currently having a fundraiser to raise funds in order to bring a canoe or a few, I'm not sure how many, but traditional canoes that they have built um, and that are a big part of their cultural traditions over to Paris. And I, I fathom how they're going to bring those canoes over to Paris. But this is something that the Lummi Nation is not the only indigenous nation doing this. A lot of different indigenous groups are bringing canoes and plan on doing something on the Thames River through Paris that second week. So that is is a highlight that I look forward to to trying to document. And um, and then also 350 is is organizing a mass action of people for December 12th, the day after the conference ends in the streets of Paris. So there's a lot in in outside of the conference that will be happening. So you're Ali, you're going as part of the UUA, but Ethan, you're not, correct? Yeah, I'm going with Religions for Peace, but I would love to make connections both with UUs and Mennonites. And I'm, uh, I'm also involved in a group, Citizens Climate Lobby, which we might talk about a little later. And they have a group that's going to Paris, too. So, you know, everything's coming together around this, you know. Sharon, I just wanted to say we I'm not part of our official delegation that's going. Uh, I think I, I will be kind of a support person helping with media, um, but I'm not going inside or in any way officially representing the UUA. Yeah, and, and we don't we don't have passes to actually see the real negotiations either, but Religions for Peace is sending us four because, you know, we can bring more to the interface youth movement and report back and things like that. So. But you can go to, like they have workshops, so you can go to those and that type of thing as part of the conference? Yeah, there's tons of side meetings, workshops, all sorts of things that are open to the public. There's just like a gazillion different topics each day, you know, so it's like there's a lot to sort through and decide between. It's like, a, you know, it's like other conferences for work or whatever you study or whatever, where you're just like, oh my gosh, there's so many. <laughs> what do I go to? Right. So the, but the nations, let me understand this. So the nations though, they're, they're getting together and you said they're trying to negotiate different things. Is that kind of the idea behind it? Yeah, they are. There's, yes. uh, there's what a it, few different key things. Oh, do you want to talk about Ali? Um, yeah, sorry. What I heard, I was speaking the other day to Bruce Knotts, and he is the um, the director of our mission to the United Nations, the UU United Nations office. And his insight is that they're trying to structure it a little bit differently because they've been trying to come to an international agreement for a long time, and it's been nearly impossible. Everyone's pointing fingers at other nations and saying, until you do something, we won't. And so Bruce um, has told me that there's basically a new structure that they're aiming for where each nation will say, this is what we're willing to do. And the goal is still to make an international binding agreement, but it's basically like everyone will put in their own commitments and then they will try to find a means of making those, um, 
binding as an international accord or protocol. And so in order for that to happen for the United States, we would need Congress to ratify our commitments, um, whatever we put into this disagreement that happens in December. And as it as most people know, our Congress is full of climate deniers and there's a lot of um, problems there. So a lot of what needs to be done is actually at the home front with Congress. And whatever we commit to in Paris won't make much of a difference unless we change our domestic political landscape. Wow. So it's uh, whatever they decide there isn't binding. It's just kind of a, a, it sets it in motion for Mm-hmm. Congress to make a decision to say yes, we right. <laughs> oh wow, and, and there and the are whole- there are really interesting philosophical kind of arguments or whatever about that topic of binding versus non-binding because obviously it's much harder on a political level to come up with like a worldwide treaty and different countries have to ratify it and you know larger majorities of their parliament or Congress than is you know, necessary otherwise. And so, yeah, I I think there is a, you can make arguments on either side about is non-binding or binding better, but, you know, what's new about this one is that countries have individually determined what their national contribution is to uh, lowering emissions, and countries have been submitting those in their public documents, and so you can see, like, oh, the United States says we're going to cut our emissions this much by this date, and, you know, Brazil is going to, and one of the biggest things to come out of this is discussions on the, the climate fund, how the, the richer countries are going to provide financial support to the um, developing countries to help them with their uh, emissions because they still need to develop at the same time as, you know, they, they transition away from fossil fuels. And so um, a lot of countries, what they're doing is they're submitting two different INDCs, individually nationally determined contributions, one with extra funding from the richer nations and one without. And so that's that's a big step where at least people can agree to make some changes without having to have a binding legal uh, you know, agreement. And then they're creating a, a process to check in every five years on the, the contributions and how people are doing and so that's kind of some of the goals that they have for it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. If I mean, will you know, say, what the U.S. says they want? And then is that, you know, once it's declared and people know about it, can't things be done on the side and be supported even without the permission of the Congress? Yeah, definitely. Um, of course, it would, we could do a lot more if our Congress got on board and, things like that. You know, we've seen the clean power plan. Um, there's federal pushes for, you know, stronger um, emission standards for trucks and vehicles and things like that. And so you can actually find the documents where uh, people have done analysis of what is our intended contribution and what steps do we have that are in the works right now through the clean power plan and other federal executive kind of works. And, and it shows that we we're making some progress, but we don't even, you know, it, it's not clear how we're even going to meet our, what we say we're going to meet, and what we say we're going to meet isn't enough anyway. So we're <laughs> falling short in a couple of, you know, both steps of those. And what are, what do you think the the main topics are going to be at the conference? Is it 
just going to be emissions or what are some of the things that are going to be addressed? Well, I think Ethan already mentioned the Green Climate Fund or the international support between countries is definitely going to be a big topic. I think in terms of what civil society is bringing, there's a lot of push to keep fossil fuels in the ground. And ultimately, the call for climate justice involves not just taking climate action, which is more of a how are we going to finance this and how are we going to keep the economy chugging along while we address climate change. That would, to me, that's climate action. And then climate justice comes from how do we support the the mass migrations that are already happening? How do we stop so much international conflict and civil war that is that is based in either environmental disaster or vying over limited resources? And how do we, you know, how do we change our social order so that while we address climate change, we're also building for a more equitable society? So that is, it's a very broad umbrella, what climate justice means and what it entails. And ultimately, we see that that rhetoric being used within the climate talks, but not as much as it's being used by people directly impacted who are who will be outside of the conference. And a big push is to to keep it in the ground. And by it, we mean the fossil fuels and to do that at any cost and to invest in new energy sources and new kinds of infrastructure so that we can feasibly do that within five or 15 years. And uh, I was just going to briefly say the, the Citizens Climate Lobby Group that I'm active in, that the, you know, leaving fossil fuels in the ground, that's essentially what um, our group is all about and we're we're pushing for a certain type of legislation a carbon fee that would make fossil fuels more expensive because we all know that they're cheap to buy with dollars but they're not cheap in the sense of all the damage they're creating to vulnerable communities climate change air pollution etc and so our kind of strategy is that like one of the fundamental issues with fossil fuels and economy there's many issues with our economic systems, but one of the fundamental issues with fossil fuels is that they're too cheap, and if we can make them more expensive, that's a more effective way to get us off of fossil fuels than to have this patchwork of subsidies for renewable energy. And uh, and then we also address the justice of this transition by um, having all of the, the funds that are raised by the fees that fossil fuel companies pay being returned to households so people get the money back and so that uses the, the burden and transition. So I'm super passionate about that and that's kind of, um, and so I also kind of come at that from an interfaith perspective as much as I can where, you know, that's something um, that has a lot of wisdom and kind of um, nonpartisanship built into it so that I'm like hugely passionate about that idea. Okay, that's your and that's your focus, Ali. Do you have a focus that you're most interested in? I'm really focused on the the civil society movements that are happening, and also the the rights of indigenous nations um, to to make their own. Like basically, internationally and domestically, indigenous nations are being 
abused and not given proper, like we're not honoring treaties that we've already made. And we often use native lands as dumping grounds. And we've seen that with nuclear proliferation and with current uranium extraction, with coal mining, um, with a lot of things. And so something that I hold really deeply is that if that were to change and we were to recognize the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, then the environmental injustices happening domestically would completely change face. So that's something that I think is at the forefront of, of my interest is supporting the Lummi Nation youth delegation there and and other movements. And that's something that, that I really started noticing more and, and learning more about when I joined the Tar Sands blockade resistance in Texas because we had a a relationship with the Rosebud Sioux Nation, the Lakota Nation up in South Dakota. And they pledged to they pledged their lives to stop the Keystone Pipeline. And so, you know, you didn't hear that when when the president said we're not going to build the Keystone. It wasn't because we have indigenous people who are willing to die to stop the pipeline. You notice that wasn't brought up in his reasons at all. And so I kind of feel like there's there's an undercurrent of of what actually makes change that still is not recognized in the media and that that is one of those things that increasingly has a lot of significance and power. So um, the rights of indigenous people is um, something. And then what I'm hearing from friends and allies within that movement is that there will be a discussion about the rights of nature and basically... To me, the, the, the language of, of rights and human rights is something that obviously humans created. And how can we use this language to describe what an ecological balance would look like? So what would the rights of nature be in terms of how humans interface with nature? And it's an interesting question. And Ethan and I have talked about it a little bit. And we're still both, I think, a little bit confused as to whether that's really a good way to think about it. But that's not really our job to figure out. And so part of it is going to be learning what frontline impacted communities and people such as these indigenous nations calling for a conversation on the rights of nature, learning what that is about and what that means. And we do see it in some nations already. In Bolivia, they've recognized rights of nature. And in Ecuador, there's a lot going on. In Peru, a lot going on about trying to find that balance between, like, Ecuador, for example, is a, is a multinational state, so they recognize some things in, in that regard. It's exciting. Definitely mm-hmm. exciting times. <laughs> yeah, lots of areas but, to um, look at. <laughs> the Pope's encyclical um, calls for a reimagining of, of our relationship with nature and creating an ecological order of society. And so my, um, I wanted to bring up that this really is a dialogue that more and more is being had within um, faith movements. Yeah, I was just going to add that, uh, you know, the topic of uh, indigenous indigenous people, the nations, and how their voices aren't being heard in a lot of this national and global dialogue we're having. Um, Ali and I are also cooperating on a on a small project that the Our Voices Religions for Peace Interfaith Group they're trying to do their own series of podcasts focusing on marginalized voices and voices that just aren't getting out there as much. And so we're, we're working with them to, uh, you know, get a podcast out about, um, a, a movie, I guess, Ali, you can talk about more that, that focuses on the resistance to fossil fuels of indigenous communities in both the North and the South. So that's an exciting project. Just do one 
one short segment for, you know, a, a bigger podcast. So I think we can make it happen. Well, I hope... <laughs> I hope we can get it happening um, in terms of, of creating a podcast. About a year ago, I met a, a couple from Europe who is filming a documentary about the tar sands impact on indigenous people from British Columbia and Alberta to Oklahoma and Texas, where, where the refineries are and where they're um, exporting it around the world. And then also down to Ecuador and Peru and Chile. And, and so they basically took indigenous leaders in the climate justice movement from British Columbia to Kaya Blaney, who's 14 and who will be there in Molina Massimo um, from Alberta. And then a few friends of mine from Texas, Brian Paras and Judith Nieto. And they all went and traveled to Ecuador and Peru to meet with people who have been witnessing a lot of abuse at the hands of Chevron and Texaco who have seen their lands in, in the rainforest be polluted by fossil fuel extraction and who are still having to fight against new fossil fuel projects and new leases of their lands. And there also is a tremendous amount of, of grassroots environmental resistance being arrested without charge, held without charge, disappearing or murdered, especially in South America. And so that's a big part of of global inequity and injustice is that I can sit here safely in Texas and, and be opposed to tar sands, but it's not so easy for somebody who is part of, of the indigenous nation downstream or the indigenous nation in the Amazon. So they're, they're going to Paris and um, hope to show a few film screenings there. And my goal is to help connect them with, with the Our Voices campaign. And I'm not sure if it will happen, but I hope so. And in any case, I will be happy to see them again. The, the documentary is called The Condor and the Eagle, and you can, you can look it up on YouTube, The Condor and Eagle documentary, and um, it, there's multiple ones that come up, but this is the, the modern one. I think you'll be able to tell the difference, and um, <laughs> there's a, like a 14-minute preview of, of the film, so that will give you a really good idea of what it's about. Oh, cool. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes then. Put a link to that. That'll be good. Great. All right. What do you think the solution is to have their voices heard? What, what needs to happen? Well, I mentioned before ratifying the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as something that could be done. The United States and Canada have both not signed on to it, but it is internationally recognized by many, many countries. And it basically gives sovereignty, a certain amount of sovereignty and land rights to indigenous people. And another thing is conversations about the doctrine of discovery and the way that, that the United States was colonized on the pretense of um, a Christian right to any lands owned by non-Christians and how that's still reflected in, in the way judicial, system, judicial decisions about land disputes with indigenous nations in the United States play out. Um, so that's one thing that could change that might hold an impact on, on our fossil fuel extraction within native lands or other instances of environmental racism. And besides that, I have a, a vision for a more just economy. And I think a lot of people do and that that's at the root of it because, and, and that interface between the political system and our economic system. So the amount, the, the way that, that corporate money is free speech 
apparently, um, if that were to change. And we were to stop subsidizing fossil fuel extraction to the extent that we are. And I think also the movement to have, like, that every person deserves a living wage. Um, So the fight for 15 domestically is important. And then also I think we should be pushing that all trade should be fair trade. And really it's the the belief that profits matter more than than the impact on on our human lives is what's causing us to to dwell in such a toxic economy that that disproportionately affects people of color and people of of lower income. Yeah, you know, and the and the Pope's gotten some attention for saying very similar things too. You know, he said economies should serve people first and not people blindly serving the economy. It doesn't make sense. So is there anything that uh, you'd like to add that you haven't talked about yet that you wanted to, to share just to kind of complete this portion of it? I, I just want to say something real quick. You know, Allie and I have some great conversations together because we, we come from these topics from different angles. And uh, like I'm an, I'm an engineer, I'm a scientist. I, that definitely colors how I think about things. And uh, I just kind of naturally have a very, I'm very focused on like practical steps, you know, not that Allie isn't or anything like that, but um, that's why I'm drawn to the, the Citizens Climate Lobby so much. And there's a lot of uh, prominent scientists out there like Jim Hansen and Catherine Hayhoe who are very well known and they really push Citizens Climate Lobby as like, or at least the idea of a carbon fee and rebate as like the most effective thing that can be done about climate change. And so, you know, I, I never, I like, whenever I say something like that, I, you know, I, I hate the feeling that I'm like, hey, this way is the best or something, uh, which is bad. But, um, you know, I, I think there's room for a lot more like collaboration between all the different environmental movements and like, how can we help each other with, with our goals and raising awareness of things? And uh, just at, like, the big picture level, I feel like, you know, if we can fix the price of fossil fuels to be higher, that spurs us in every direction to get off of them faster. And so I'm very, I'm very passionate about that. And just, you know, um, there's studies out there that just with this simple change and adding a, a fee on fossil fuels, that uh, we would far exceed our country's intended contributions. We could make, uh, we could transition off of fossil fuels in that time frame of 10, 15, 20 years that Ali mentioned was so important. So, you know, I just, I just can't stop talking about that. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> I believe in it so much. So, you know, that's me. <laughs> The one thing that I would like to add, I guess, is to talk a bit more about Commit to Respond and what um, people listening would be able to do to engage. And so the Commit to Respond campaign, we launched it in September 2014 with the People's Climate March, which was the largest march of, of people through the streets of New York in the United States for climate action and climate justice. And since then, we've seen many, many, many congregations and individuals sign up and it's something that you could do with your congregation or that you could just set an intention to do as an individual and the call is to look at how you 
or your congregation can shift towards a low-carbon future, um, things that you can change about just daily operations in your life or your church's life, and ways that you can advance the human right, advance human rights of impacted communities when it comes to environmental racism, and then thirdly, how you can help grow the climate justice movement, which comes down to, um, I think, learning about some of these political issues and what political proverbial levers need to be pulled, but also looking at the power of people. And I believe strongly that we should not be waiting for leaders to make the change that we need. We should be looking at what each and every one of us can change and what we can do and who we can vote out of office or how we can pressure mm-hmm. things to to become more and more towards a, a sustainable, life-sustaining society. I was just going to say on that, you know, I, I feel strongly that you know, it's not enough to tell our leaders that we want them to fix climate change. There's so many different ways to do that. There's so many, there's so much contention in how that's done. There's polarization on how do we tackle it? Is it through regulation? Is it fixes through the economy or the market system? You know, that we really need to also focus on talking to our leaders and saying this is how, how we want it, it done. And uh, so, you know, so I think that's an important angle too. On our webpage, I have in the, inside of the hot topics, you'll see a lot of information on commit to respond that, you know, everyone can go to and check that out. And we've had Peggy Clark on and she's spoke about that too. So it's, it's a hot can topic. I add one, yeah. Can I add one uh, practical thing that people can do too? Sure. Real quick. So uh, it's really interesting that both, Citizens Climate Lobby and a larger interfaith movement have been really instrumental in talking to Republican congresspeople about climate change. And for some reason, the media didn't seem to cover this very well. But in mid-September, House Republicans introduced a resolution saying that they recognized the reality of climate change, that we need policies, environmental policies based on facts, and that we need to commit to action on climate change. And I think that's wonderfully exciting. So um, it's called the Gibson Resolution. It's kind of the shorthand for it. It was introduced by Representative Gibson in New York. And uh, it's uh, HRES, House Resolution 424. And so especially people who live in uh, districts where their congressperson is Republican, you can uh, encourage your, your representative to sign on and support the, the Gibson resolution. I think it's super exciting. And like Ali said, we need to really address the polarization that we have in our Congress. And we need, practically speaking, we need Republicans to be on board if we're going to have meaningful action on climate change. And this is a huge step in that direction. Well, can both of you give me a favorite quote of yours that inspires you? When you ask this um, immediately, I've held a quote that Ginny Von Corder said when she was in Texas um, speaking to the Southwest District, and I've held it with me ever since she said it, and that is to dream lucid and wide awake. And I think that's that's um, so relevant to our work on climate justice, because as I said, it's up to us to open our imaginations and to think beyond the box of economic feasibility to, to what ecologically needs to happen. So I carry that with me 
all the time to dream lucid and wide awake and and dream the world and be the change that we want to see. Nice. Okay, Ethan. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite quotes is from Gandhi. He said, know the rules well so you know when to break them. And uh, I think that can apply to a lot of things that's applied to me in my spiritual journey of, you know, becoming a Mennonite and then a UU. It certainly uh, applies to direct action on any <laughs> any topic and climate change and things. And uh, for me, you know, it, it it's just about, um, you know, deeply questioning and, and looking at things and knowing structures and rules well, and then you can know the spirit behind them. And sometimes, you know, the true spirit of things makes you resist laws and resist rules and change them. All right, great. And the last question I have for both of you is how is Unitarian Universalism as a religious denomination uniquely positioned to serve and impact society? And Ethan, I'll have you go first. Sure, you know, I was really drawn to Unitarian Universalism just because it is so accepting of different spiritual traditions and and, uh, kind of streams of religious thought and wisdom. And so I think uh, in our climate culture today, you know, a lot of young people are questioning kind of traditional religion and have a sense that um, moral and spiritual values are important, but um, kind of traditional forms of of religion maybe aren't um, appealing to everyone anymore. And so I think uh, Unitarian Universalists um, have a a real role in in that and um, kind of bringing core spiritual principles to bear on on um, how we pursue justice in the world. All right, Allie. Well, I think kind of primary to all of it is is our commitment to pursuing justice in the world in a direct way that puts us as individuals responsible for our our relation with with the world and with everyone in it. And so I'm really proud of Unitarian Universalism for that, for its commitment to justice. And I see the rhetoric of, of you know, the every soul is worthy in a lot of different faith spaces, but I think Unitarian Universalists have something really special about every voice being welcome at the table, there being always space for change and redemption, and, um, and there being a, a, a constant call that there is a a just society that can be obtained through um, persistence and at times civil disobedience um, and doing the right thing and not necessarily the legal thing. Aside from that, I think that we've got a lot of love and compassion and also intelligence and commitment within our community. And we, I've seen um, through conversations in even just web forums or in-person forums that there are people within our faith who who have come up with ideas that could really really change the world um, and who do work at this international level right like with the united nations on women's rights issues or on lbgtq issues and so i think that it's ultimately our commitment to justice and our our compassion and passion to live that through our lives that puts us in a place to change the world all right, great. Well, thanks to both of you for so much for uh, being with us today and sharing all your wealth of knowledge and talking about climate justice. And have fun in Paris.
Yeah, thanks. That Thank was fun. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for listening to the UU Perspective podcast. And you can check out the show notes at uuperspective.com. And please feel free to leave any comments down at the bottom of the episode and what your thoughts are on the Paris UN Climate Conference. And also, I really appreciate the fact that you're taking time out to listen during these busy holiday season and hope that you're having a safe and happy holiday. So until next week, have a great week. Bye. Bye.